Good morning. As you can see everybody out this morning, be able to make it. Welcome our visitors who are with us this morning as well. Um, turn over, if you haven't already, to the book of Acts as we're continuing in our journey through God's Word here in 2018, reading uh, a chapter a day, really, during the week, five chapters a week. Our reading this week was from Acts chapters 12 through 16, and next week we'll be looking at chapter 17 through 21. Um, before we get to uh, Acts 12 through 16, I want to go back to Acts chapter 1. Uh, if you would, turn over to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. <clears throat> so Acts chapter 1, verse 8 has um, a sort of addendum, if you will, to the Great Commission. It's a, an explanation of um, the expectations that Jesus has for His disciples, for, for the apostles. Verse 8, He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and, in, and to the end of the earth. So, their task that was set before them was to be His witnesses. And He says specific areas where they needed to be witnesses for Him. They were going to do so in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So, so far in our reading in Acts, up into our reading this week, uh, in the first uh, eight chapters, chapters 1 through 8 to about verse 3, uh, we see this happening in Jerusalem. This fulfillment of being a witness for Jesus in Jerusalem occurs in those first eight chapters. From chapter 8, verse 4, until uh, chapter 12, verse 25, we see it happening in all Judea and Samaria. And so that part is fulfilled. The rest of Luke's account focuses on the ministry of the Apostle Paul, also known as Saul of Tarsus, right? And in in the chapter that we're reading right now, here in verses 1 through 3, he's referred to as Saul. But later on in verse 9, his name turns to Paul. And from the rest, for the rest of the time on, he's referred to as such. Um, but it is Paul, who is the former persecutor of the Lord's church, is now Jesus' apostle to the Gentiles. And it's his missionary journeys that illustrate how the gospel was taken to the ends of the earth. It was Paul who fulfills the latter portion of Acts 1 verse 8 that says, to the end of the earth, to the Gentiles. And to an extent, that's what we're doing still today. So Paul's first missionary journey begins soon after he returns to Antioch of Syria. And he does that with Barnabas, uh, as well as John Mark. And that's where we, we read about that in Acts chapter 12, verse 25, which is a part of our reading this week as well. Um, but his missionary journey begins with a special call by the Holy Spirit. So turn over to Acts chapter 11 now. We're going to look a little bit closer at the call of Barnabas and Saul. And to do this, I want to first look at the church in Antioch of Syria. What's so special about the church in Antioch of Syria, and why is it from this position geographically 
uh, did Paul and Barnabas depart on their missionary journeys. And it wasn't just this missionary journey. In fact, Antioch would be the launching point of all three of their missionary journeys. Um, So look in uh, Acts chapter 11, look at verses 19 through 21. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And if we continue on there, uh, verse 22, the, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Uh, For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world, which took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So Barnabas and Saul become a major part of the church in Antioch, and the church in Antioch becomes a major focal point of the church in that region. They were sending aid to those who were in Judea because of the coming famine that was prophesied there by Agabus. But Barnabas strengthens the church in Antioch, and then he goes and he finds Saul of Tarsus to aid him in strengthening the church and building the church up in Christ. The church was blessed with a number of prophets and teachers. We see that in the first verse of Acts chapter 13 that that Dave uh, just read. The first of these teachers was Barnabas. Barnabas is a Levite. Acts chapter 4 verse 36 talks about Barnabas, tells us who he is. He's a Levite and he is a native of Cyprus. So if we go back here to 11... Uh, There were some of them, verse 20, there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists and and preached the Lord Jesus. Barnabas is one of those men, a man from Cyprus. Another of these individuals, Simon, called Niger, or Niger. This word means black. All right, so it's a reference to his skin tone. Now, we presume, as many, uh, many scholars presume, that he was a black African, um, and some believe that this is possibly Simon of Cyrene, who helped Jesus carry his cross. Is it? We don't know for sure. But um, the fact that Simon of Cyrene, his name, when it's mentioned in the Gospel accounts of Cyrene, indicates his descent uh, from northern Africa... Um, And again, if we look at uh, verse 20 there of chapter 11, men of Cyprus and Cyrene were part of this group. It's possible. Uh, We also have Lucius of Cyrene, also from North Africa. Lucius is also mentioned by Paul in Romans chapter uh, 16, verse 21. 
And then we have uh, uh, Manian. Uh, he's interesting, right? He's, he's raised with royalty. He's brought up, it says he was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, who is Herod Antipas, the same guy who uh, kills John the Baptist, the same guy who tries Jesus uh, before his crucifixion. Um, he was raised with him. So if that's the case, he was likely part of the royal court. And um, Herodians, right, they weren't really fond of Jesus at all. And this guy, who was raised with Herod, obviously is. So he's there as well. And then lastly, we have Saul of Tarsus. Tarsus, of course, I don't have a map up here, but Tarsus is in uh, Cilicia. This is a Roman province. That's where he's from. That's where he was born. That is where uh, he, his citizenship is. This is where Saul gets his Roman citizenship. And if you recall, and we'll see later on in the book of Acts as we go through this, he uh, appeals to Caesar. He uses his Roman citizenship as a tool of ministry, basically, to be able to bring the gospel into Rome and to um, really avoid um, some nasty things that could have happened to him. Um, so those are the, those are the uh, five men that were mentioned uh, there in verse 1 of chapter 13, these prophets and teachers that uh, were a part of the church in Antioch. Then the next two verses there in Acts chapter 13 is where we see the call of the Holy Spirit. Let's read that again. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Two times fasting is mentioned there. We're going to talk about that. In fact, we're going to look at some more observations here in a minute. So, what we see here, though, is Paul and Barnabas, or Saul and Barnabas, they are sent out by the Holy Spirit. They are sent out on their first missionary journey to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth and to the Gentiles. Now, for the re- remaining time that we have today, uh, I want to focus on and share some observations from this section to understand um, some aspects of the early church as it grew. Um, as the Church of Christ today, we tend to look at the churches that we see throughout the book of Acts and, and the teachings that we have from Paul uh, in his letters to help shape the church that we are today. We try to model ourselves after those congregations. So it's important to look at these congregations in a manner in which we can find application to where we can um, build our own congregations and see how they grew so that we can grow in the same ways. So the first thing I want to look at is the diversity of the church in Antioch. So in this church, we have a vast racial, cultural, and social diversity, just in the five teachers and prophets that were mentioned in verse 1. Uh, in this section, you have, uh, you have five men, two of which are from North Africa, one is from Cyprus, and one of them is, from, is uh, Roman, he's from Cilicia. And then the lastly, we have one who's from Palestine, that's Menaean, who was raised with Herod. All right. So you have cultural differences there, racial differences uh, as well. Um, also, you know, Menaean was raised with, with royalty. There's a definite cultural, societal, social uh, difference that he would have there. Another one was, was wealthy, another one was a rabbi. So again, you have just a cacophony of people that didn't come from the same backgrounds, 
but they are working together and growing the church together. This is how the church is intended to be. When we look throughout Scripture and we look at Paul's writings, Romans chapter 10, verse 12, he says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. And, it, and then to the Galatians in Galatians three twenty-five through 29 But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ... There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. The key element of Paul's teaching there in Galatians is that the things that we put up walls to separate us, the things that we think separate us, you know, culture likes to divide. Naturally, it's been like that for decades, for centuries. But in Christ, those walls are supposed to come crumbling down. Because there is no separation, there is no distinction in the eyes of Christ. We are all one. We are all brothers, we are all sisters. It doesn't matter where we came from, it doesn't matter what country we originated from, it doesn't matter our upbringing, whether we were rich or poor, it doesn't matter whether we're rich or poor now. What matters is that we are Christ's. Colossians 3, verse 11, echoes this as well. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. You see, all of those cultural differences, all those societal, social things that that separate us, or we think separate us from others, our peers at, at work or at school, when you become a Christian, those things go away, and it's just Christ Christ is all and in all. That's it. When you look at a fellow Christian, you shouldn't see skin color. You shouldn't see um, you know, the money they do or don't have. You shouldn't see the clothes that are, are nice or, or dingy or whatever. You should see Christ. And you should be showing Christ as well. See, that's what the church is supposed to be. Congregations should reflect our oneness in Christ, not our societal, societal divisions. Now let's consider the principle of synergy. Synergy uh, is defined as the working together of two things to produce a result greater than the sum of their individual effects. Everybody get that? Everybody write that down? Here's Here's a more simple way to think of it. Two or more people working together can accomplish more than they're working separately or alone. Now I, for one, in my past of working on group projects in college. I hated working on group projects in college. This word synergy didn't exist in the group setting in college because the whole point of synergy is that they're working together, right? And how many of you can remember working in groups, whether at school or at work, and that everybody was working together? It very rarely happens. I can recall giving a presentation in college um, there was a group of five or six of us, I think it was macroeconomics. But we were giving a presentation on Coke or Pepsi or, or a combination of both, I'm not sure. Um, but one of the group members had a part of the presentation that she was supposed to give. Each of us were supposed to take up about five minutes. We had 20 minutes, I think, to give, uh, for the full, or 25 minutes to give the full presentation, five minutes each. She went a minute and a half. 
And I'm standing there. I'm the group leader, of course. And so now I have to fill the rest of her five minutes with the material that she didn't cover. And so the synergy part wasn't there. But in the church, it's supposed to be there. It's not supposed to be one or five people doing the work of the whole congregation. The whole congregation is supposed to work together for the benefit of the kingdom. You know, a lot of times, um, you know, I hear stories from, from fellow ministers about, you know, the expectations that are put on them by elders and, and, and such to do specific things or, or be a specific person, if you will, um, and how that um, turns them off from ministry. And, and several of them leave ministry because they are so overburdened and overworked because of all the expectations that are put just on the minister. And Dave, as a former minister for several years, can probably relate to this as well. But the fact is, is that the the responsibilities of a congregation are not just the ministers to fulfill. They're all of ours. We're all supposed to be spreading and teaching the gospel. We're all supposed to be shining the light in the community. We're all supposed to be there to support one another in our times of need, of grief and sadness, to be a shoulder to cry on. To be the person that, that you can pick up the phone and call them and say, hey, I need somebody to talk to. That's the responsibility. That's the role of the congregation. That's how synergy is used. Now, synergy in Scripture is also seen uh, several other places. Jesus believes in this this idea of synergy. If you look at Mark 6, verse 7, He calls the twelve apostles and He began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Similarly, in Luke chapter 10, verse 1, as he's sending out the 72, he appoints the 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Why did he send them two by two? Because they could work better together than they could on their own. Synergy. Barnabas believes in this principle as well, as we, see, or as we saw earlier in Acts chapter 11, 25-26, as he went to Tarsus to find Saul to help him strengthen the congregation. He needed that assistance. He needed that helper. The Holy Spirit himself clearly believes uh, in, in the, this principle of synergy as well, because he called Paul and Barnabas to go on this missionary journey in Acts chapter 13, verse 2. Both of them. Two, two guys going out on the trip. Uh, so too, in the local church today, all of us should be working together to grow Christ's kingdom. If we are to, uh, to support foreign missionaries, you know, uh, several churches do this. Uh, if we are to support uh, these foreign missionaries, it's likely best to support those who have a team that they are working together with in the community. Now, it's not always the case, though. It's not always the case in which you have two missionaries working together. But in those cases that there are, um, you know, they work much better as a team than individually uh, in an area, especially where there's heavy persecution. Um, you know, those, those, the number of those areas that exist today are growing in number. Um, and unfortunately, there are several missionaries who are going at it alone. Um, and perhaps that's not so much a, a call for us to support them financially, but perhaps start thinking about ways we can support them in other ways, physically. Um, and just as the church in Antioch did, sending people to help as, as the need uh, requires. So that's the, the principle of synergy. 
There's another principle that we see in Acts chapter 13, and I mentioned it earlier, and we saw it a couple of times, and that's the principle of fasting, the uh, act of worship, if you will. Um, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 15, he told his disciples that they would fast. Verse 14 of Matthew 9, he says, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Jesus saying there in Matthew 9 that now is not the time for them to fast. Now is the time for them to learn. And one of the things that he teaches them is how to fast. So when the time comes when you need to fast, this is how you do it. Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. He says, When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Remember, their reward, because they're doing it to be seen by others, their reward is being seen by others. That's what they've accomplished. Verse uh, 17, But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. See, fasting for the Lord is something that is done reverently. It's something that's between you and God. And what he says here, when he says, anoint your head and wash your face, he basically means look normal. Don't make yourself look all weary and sad. Oh, I'm on a diet. This is awful. So that's different, right? That's not fasting for the Lord. Dieting is awful. And it is something that makes you look terrible. Well, not, not the end result should make you look fabulous. But, you know, during it, though, when you're, you know, cutting calories or, or changing, changing, you know, from delicious, lovely fast food to green vegetable things that grow in the ground, the change there, it impacts you. It does, whether it's tiredness or crankiness, what have you. But when you fast for the Lord, you're doing it for a spiritual reason, not a physical reason. The physical part of it impacts the spiritual. But when you fast for medical reasons or for dieting reasons, those sorts of things, that's a different kind of fasting. We're talking about fasting for the Lord. So Jesus tells them that they will fast, and he tells them how to do it. Now we see... Uh, the church in Antioch, fasting. Uh, they did it twice. In fact, it says in verse 2, it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, so they were worshiping together while also fasting together. And then later on, when they uh, were about to send Saul and Barnabas out, they fasted and prayed. So this was a regular practice that the church there did. Uh, in Acts chapter 14, Uh, verses 21 through 23, we see Paul and Barnabas appointing elders with prayer and fasting. Uh, Look at that, Uh, Acts 14, 21 through 23. It says, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So, there's the appointing of elders with prayer and fasting. Fasting in conjunction with prayer is suitable in the life of a Christian in the church, and and I would dare say it's normal and should be something that we should um, 
strive to do. It's probably something we may not do enough of. I know myself included. I don't fast as much as I probably should, um, especially in terms of um, preparing myself or, or connecting myself uh, spiritually with God. What about the laying on of hands? This is another uh, topic that uh, is talked about a lot today. I think there's some, um, there's some false doctrine that circulates around the laying on of hands and the use and the, and the purpose of it, etc. But when we look at the use cases in Scripture, outside of the apostles laying their hands on someone to impart the Holy Spirit or the gifts of the Holy Spirit on them, that's a different kind of laying on of hands. Um, the, 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 the different angle that I want to look at this morning is um, in the use case that was used here in Acts chapter 13. What was the point of them laying their hands on Saul and Barnabas before sending them out? Saul and Barnabas already had gifts of the Holy Spirit, so that was not the purpose. So what then was the purpose? So we look elsewhere in Scripture um, to help define that a little bit. So, oftentimes, uh, the laying on of hands was used in conjunction with uh, uh, the appointment or dedication of someone to service. Um, So, in this case, Saul and Barnabas, as they're being sent out to serve on the missionary journey, um, they're doing so uh, with the laying on of hands. Acts chapter 6, verses 5 through 6, is another example of this. It says, when they said, uh, or what they said, pleased the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, uh, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. See, I have a lot of names too, Dave. Verse 6, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Okay, again, we have prayer and the laying on of hands. Um, this verse, I think, also alludes to the laying on of hands, indicating acceptance and approval of those who have been selected by the congregation. Um, I think uh, I've seen this a lot, um, especially like on senior Sundays when graduates, you know, seniors are graduating high school, um, their graduation may be coming up soon or they're done with uh, high school, that elders will present them with Bibles and, and place their hands on them and pray over them as they, you know, start into the next chapter of their life, if you will. Um, it's very similar, I think, to this, uh, what we see here, uh, being accepting um, and showing approval and, and showing support. I mean, a comforting touch is welcome sometimes, right? Sometimes we need that when we're going through difficult times. Um, however, there is, um, in 2 Timothy chapter 5, verse 22, Paul gives a warning to Timothy not to be hasty in the laying on of hands. Um, I think, though, in that use case, it's possibly in terms of, uh, well, no, it's not, because I don't think Timothy had the ability to pass on spiritual gifts unless he was granted that ability elsewhere that we don't see in Scripture. But uh, in terms of being accepting and supporting somebody else, this was given in terms of being careful of false teachers, because you may have wolves in sheep's clothing that are present that, you know, you lay your hands on them, show acceptance and approval, but then they turn out to be those wolves. They burst out of that sheep's clothing and, and their true character comes out. So there's a warning not to be hasty in that. Now, in Acts chapter 13, verse 3 from our text this morning, this also seems to be a use case for seeking God's blessing and protection on those who serve as well. Um, And I think that's also characterized uh, in the example that I gave earlier with uh, elders placing their hands on 
um, you know, the graduates as they're in praying over them um, as they move on to a, a new journey. Um, so as we end our study this morning, um, we see, of course, as we wrapped up verses 1 through 3 there, we see Paul and Barnabas going off on their first missionary journey. And the rest of our reading this week talks about that as they go um, into Iconium and Lystra, um, and then the Jerusalem Council over in verse uh, chapter 15, and the, uh, the issue over, over uh, circumcision and uncircumcision and Gentiles and, and the Jews intermingling, and oh my goodness, this is the worst thing ever. We talked a little bit about that last week, of course, as well. Um, but the, the important part about Paul and Barnabas's journey here is that they were chosen. They were separated out of all those other prophets and teachers that were there at Antioch uh, by the Holy Spirit, and they were sent out um, to do the task that was set before them. All of this was done with fasting, with prayer, with the laying on of hands by those who were left behind in Antioch. Now, as I mentioned before, Paul and Barnabas will return to Antioch and the church there. Um, it does serve as kind of their, uh, I wouldn't say headquarters, but their, their launching point for their other missionary journeys. Uh, there's three, three in total. This is the first one as they're, they're heading out. Um, but the application point really for us today uh, is that thousands of years later and thousands of miles away, we benefit from the work of those who are willing to go, those who are willing to send as well. You know, Saul, or, or Paul, as he begins being known as in Acts 13, 9, uh, his work, his missionary work, that was his part in fulfilling the Great Commission. And that Great Commission didn't stop at Paul. It didn't stop at the apostles in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. The Great Commission continues today. It's still something that we're expected to do today. Because somebody did it before us. That's why many of us are here, right? That's why the gospel even got to America. Someone had to bring it. So the example... um, that was set by Paul and Barnabas and the brethren at Antioch of Syria should encourage us to do our part today as the congregation is a part of of Christ's kingdom. So as we leave this gathering place today, I hope that we uh, may too take the gospel of Christ to all who will hear. If you're here this morning and you have heard the gospel, or you haven't heard the gospel, If you don't know what it means to obey the gospel, we want to study with you. We want to answer any questions that you have so that you may come to the right decision according to what Scripture tells you. Or if you're here and you desire to respond uh, to that gospel message, or perhaps you're going through tough times and you just need the laying on of hands, you need the encouragement, you need the the love and the prayers of the congregation to, to aid you in going through whatever it is you're going through. Uh, If we can assist you in any way, With that this morning, if you have any other need that we can help you with, now is the time that you can come forward while we stand and sing.